0: Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare.
1: Well, hey, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I'm excited to bring, I think I say this every time, I'm excited to bring this interview to you. But we got some good guests on this show, so I'm excited to bring this one to you. Uh, Darren Schwindemann is the principal and owner of a design and branding studio called Creative Distillery. Now, he and I got connected doing some work on a couple marketing things here and there, a couple positioning like boot camps. And I ended up, I, I really liked his, his deal and the way he approached his business. So what he does essentially is knowledge translation. So he helps you know, purpose-driven organizations, academic institutions, people that have ideas, the idea generators of our society. And he helps them through marketing, through the principles of effective communication He helps them bring their ideas to bear on the world. So I really, really liked just talking with him about this whole idea. You know, we hear about it in the medical space, in the academic realm, if you happen to be teaching at an institution. We talk about this idea of knowledge translation. And at least on on our part, so I sit on the board of directors for the National Board for Occupational Therapy for NBCOT, and I hear this kind of conversation there and at academic levels here at the university that I, that I teach at, and it seems very much that knowledge translation, quote-unquote, the way that it is seen on the part of the idea generators or the researchers or the academic institutions supporting them, knowledge translation in and of itself is a very academic thing, so we talk about, well, what's the research behind getting you know, this idea to market? And it, it still stays very, very high level, very academic. What Darren and his group does is very much the practical. So they take this idea of knowledge translation, of getting an idea to the masses effectively, and they build campaigns for their clients around that. So it takes it much more from a high-level academic overview down, really down to earth, so we can discuss what are the practical things, if I've got an idea, if I've got a new treatment method, or I even just want some buy-in from clients, what can I do to get them to adopt it or to get the idea from outside of this academic area or this academic arena where it doesn't have a lot of application to daily life. And how do I make it so that it can impact the world, right? The worst thing in, that we can do is have great ideas sitting on the bookshelf somewhere. And even in, in healthcare, I think the, the latest figures are something like it takes 17 years for best practice in the research to make it down to everyday clinical practice. So people like Darren, Groups like Creative Distillery are doing their part to help shorten that window. So I'm very excited to talk with Darren about it. Hopefully you pull some nuggets and insights out of this interview, even in your own practice, your own marketing. How do I, how do I communicate an idea effectively? So without further ado, here is Darren Schwindemann, and we are talking about knowledge translation. So hey, Darren,
2: welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Rafi. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. Like, like uh, we're recording on a Friday. So I think we're all just sort of coming down off the week and, you know, uh, getting ready for what comes next.
1: Exactly. Yeah. At least for me with my four kids, Father's Day is coming up. So I'm looking forward to that.
2: <laughs> yeah. They, well, they owe you one for that day. So. <laughs> exactly.
1: so before we get too deep, tell us a little bit about yourself and then your firm, Creative Distillery.
2: Sure. So um, my name is Darren and I uh, went to school at Loyola University in New Orleans. It's a it's a Jesuit school and they kind of have a tradition for uh, social justice. And I studied graphic design, kind of grew up as an art kid and uh, was was looking into that. And really the place where that all intersected was in college, where um, the teaching was not just about sort of what you know, how do you make things and and all that, but what are you making it for? What is, what's happening with this as it goes out into the real world? And so, um, since, uh, leaving college, I've worked in journalism a little bit, uh, as a designer and then, uh, basically, uh, formed a freelance design practice. And, uh, we've, uh, my, my wife is a writer and moved in with me and we started working together and, uh, that created a set of disciplines around it that that grew into an agency, which is creative distillery. So um, we're, we're a marketing firm. We're based in Jackson, Mississippi, but we do work for clients all over. And um, I kind of call us a sort of multidisciplinary uh, brand or marketing firm um, as uh, because we've dealt with topics that are kind of complex. I found that having to uh, add Uh, disciplines to what we do meant adding staff people or adding capabilities in-house because that the the knowledge is kind of complicated to uh, have contractors sort of dip in and out of it or treat it as a technical project. We want to treat everything as a content project first.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes a little bit of sense. And part of the reason we got connected was this whole idea of what we call knowledge translation. And I know you've done some of this work with researchers, right? You help them take their what we call good ideas or whatever comes out of research and and help them get it to get it to their audience or make these ideas go from kind of the stuffy halls of academia into the real world so for those of us who might not have already heard what is when we talk about knowledge translation what do you what do you define it as
2: that's great. So first off, just full credit to you. The the term knowledge translation came to me through you. So full <laughs> shout out props there. Um, it is work that we've been doing for a long time. And um, you might, I, I hear a variation on it called research impact as well. Uh-huh. But the way that, that we think about it is simply taking this knowledge that has been developed by subject matter experts or researchers or whomever and uh, putting it to work. It's not, to me, it is not complete until it is out in the world, actively working, helping people, improving people's lives. I think that's when people are developing new research, developing new knowledge, that's what they're trying to do. And um, I think that the uh, communications side of that is is an important part of that. And uh, so knowledge translation, in a sense, is all the processes and distributions and Uh, ways that that knowledge gets out and sort of concludes when it is actually implemented.
1: Yeah, because I think, especially in the healthcare field, we talk about, you know, how do we do evidence-based practice? Or how do we take, you know, what's best practice from the literature and apply it to clinical settings? And most of the research that I'm seeing coming out of, you know, all the the recent, probably in the last five, 10 years, is that it takes roughly somewhere between like 10 and 17 years for research findings that are grounded in evidence to be at, uh, like daily applied in daily practice, um, which is which probably speaks to that key point like, uh, how do we message, how do we market, how do we get these ideas out? Um, what do you see on your end as being kind of those barriers? Like, what keeps these ideas that might be really, really good? Like, the research shows, oh, you do this treatment and it saves you this much money and patients get quicker, faster. Like, what keeps that idea from being mainstreamed?
2: Absolutely. So, I have just just I I mean an intrinsic sort of gut level frustration
1: yeah. to know
2: that there is knowledge out there that is not being put to work. You exactly, know, yeah. Um that and, and those those uh I, I think the studies I had read had called it like research lag or something, you know, uh-huh. the sort of lag time between the knowledge being developed, put into practice. Um just unacceptable, basically, like on an <laughs> emotional level to me, you know. Um In terms of of what causes that, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, there are, uh, so we've done work for a client that is a um, sort of a reproductive uh, healthcare access project. And so um, the systems, they talk a lot about sort of interacting systems. And so for a, a woman who goes to a doctor's office, Um, to be presented with all the sort of available options for her reproductive care. Um, The doctor has to know what those are, has to keep them in stock um, has to know the right code to bill insurance for that. And those are all places where um, things sort of break down, you know, those systems don't necessarily talk to each other. So I think that that's, that's one huge thing is people just come at their problems from different vantage points. And there's rarely a single uh, entity that is in charge of solving an entire problem. So they're sort of charged with, you know, maybe they develop a new treatment, but they don't know the first thing about how to convince insurance companies to pay for that. So that in itself opens up a huge uh, type of barrier that might be there that prevents that from You know, hitting the ground
1: screen, Yeah, well, and especially when you get into things like reproductive care or just cash-based practice in general, that already lays like puts a big barrier. Um, I'm sort of I'm sympathetic to because of the work that I've been doing with people with disabilities, like just access to care. And when you start talking about, well, now we have to find a way to pay for it, and insurance doesn't want to pay for it, which means that people that are that are wanting it or needing it sometimes just can't afford it. So yeah, that's a. I mean, that could be its, its own. Its own show in and of itself, right? Like, how do we make these things affordable? But um, uh, besides this whole this complex system where we've got different, you know, different units or different structures or organizations talking to each other or not talking to each other, um, are there any barriers within, let's say, a research organization that might prevent their ideas from coming out? Like, let's say I'm doing, you know, I'm a researcher in a lab and I come up with this great piece of information, whatever it is, I can cure cancer, whatever, like why why might that be just stuck in my building or my organization as opposed to making its way out towards the broader community?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, um, the, first off, I think if you invented a cure for cancer, that would (laughs) probably, that would probably (laughs) probably find find the way to to get out there. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's a big deal. Um, I think for, for the researchers that, uh, that we have worked with, um, the, the, Way that they would experience that, I sometimes call it like a blind spot in a sense where Uh um, they know so much. And I really, and like, I just enjoy this. I enjoy being around smart people. I enjoy being around uh, experts. I enjoy learning new things. And um, from our vantage point, we get to just see kind of behind the curtain of a lot of different things. Uh, Common things, I think, is that they know their stuff. You know, They know what they're talking about. Um, In some ways, I think where a blind spot emerges is they know so much about it that these conclusions are really obvious to them. And it, it kind of becomes difficult for them to get into the headspace of an audience that either doesn't know that information or has some maybe like identity reason or just some reason that they're not, they're not in agreement or they're not wanting to adopt it. And I mean, just an example that we're sort of dealing with at the time that we're recording this is that we... Have a ton of studies out. We pretty much know that, like wearing a mask um, oh, in yeah. the time of sort of COVID nineteen, easiest thing to do. We can all yeah. sort of keep the economy going. We can move around. Just wear the mask. And but people don't want to do it. And you know that's in a sense that's a good, just quick example of this sort of knowledge translation uh, gap. You know the knowledge is there. That's that's we're learning more about this virus every day. We're learning what happens. Um, we have that knowledge, but there is a gap. There's an identity gap among people that don't want to wear masks when they go out. There's, I mean, there's a lot of factors to sort of think about. And I think that is where messaging, communications, marketing, branding um, comes into play and and has to wrestle with those issues. So, you know, the person uh, measuring air droplets, moving around and sort of, you know, not breaking through masks and stuff like that has the knowledge, but they may not know how to Uh, put themselves into the like identity space of someone that sees that mask is imposing on their freedoms in some way. And that there's, there's work to do there. That's, that's where the work is, you know, Um, in some ways, I think I'm a sort of problem solving oriented person in the sense. And it's like, well, where's the problem? Let's take a look at it and see what we can do. So there's a lot of people working on a lot of problems. I find that my slice of the problem that we can work on is that communications messaging Uh, aspect
1: of it yeah that's such an interesting point I think you know oftentimes we hear knowledge translation and we hear you know just the idea like there's good research out there that's not being used oftentimes at least the discussions I'm having you know in academia and with this national board that I'm involved in is all like well how do we how do we fund more research to get the idea out there but what you bring up is like there's so many things going on like the idea if I think that wearing a mask is like subjugating myself or whatever, like I'm I'm imposing my freedoms. I'm not going to do it. Like you can't, there's no amount of logic, right. That's going to get, get somebody in that state of mind to say, okay, I, I see where you're coming from. And the research does actually show that it's, you know, prevents the spread of this disease or whatever. How do you think like, just from, let's use this example. Like how, what's, what's the main strategy we should use in something like this, where, where it's not so much a, the, the issue is not around the knowledge itself. It's around almost like a, an emotional or a visceral response to that knowledge. Like, how can, we, how can we address that?
2: That's a, I mean, that's a great question. You know, that is, and it is, it's a real example. It's a concrete example that we see around us every day. Um, I think that number, and this does speak to the larger issue of how can, how can people with the knowledge put themselves in a headspace? Because if you, if you know through logic and facts and research, Um, it's not really in dispute, right? That the mask is, it helps, it's the right thing to do. Exactly, I'm looking Uh, at the
1: numbers, you can't can't find the numbers. (laughs) You
2: know this fact is true, and yet there is a large percentage of audience out there that does not want to do that. What do we do with that? So I think first you have to empathize with where they're at. And I think it's easy when you know better to say that, uh, one, they just don't know, or two, I'm going to give more facts to them. Uh-huh. And I think for some of these really simple things, it's, that's ultimately not going to work. You know, whether that's the right thing or not, I have yeah. a lot of opinions about that. But ultimately, it's not going to work. So you have to empathize with where they're at and really dig into what is that sort of headspace that they're in that's refusing that. Can you find something? A lot of times people make decisions based on their identity. And I do uh-huh. think that is a sort of tough thing to reconcile with when you have facts on your side is, you know, because the, the researcher is going is to approach the situation, ideally sort of without assumptions as much as possible. Yeah. Um, they're going to let the research guide them to what the answer is. There are a lot of people out there that have an answer and then sort of pick and choose research that uh, reinforces that answer they already have, reinforces that identity. So I think what you have to do is yeah, understand that. that identity, take the behavior that you sort of want to see happen, and then use, you mentioned words like emotion, you know, visceral reactions, those sort of things. That's, I think, where creativity comes into play and where, where storytelling and marketing comes into play is activating those buttons um, in people to like bring that behavior closer to their identity. So say, you know, you don't have to give up your identity as a free independent person. You don't have to give up your identity as a masculine person. I mean, the amount of things that people don't do because they think it makes them look gay basically is (laughs) a lot, you know, uh, I saw a thing that like tote bags at the grocery store. There's a a lot of people out there that they think that kind of makes them look effeminate in a way. And that, fine. I mean, I don't agree with that, but if that's what the (laughs) issue is, then fine, we'll make tote bags for men, you know? And and I think, but that's where you start using, you start to bring it closer to the identity of the audience that you want. I think that researchers, I mean, are, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on about like elites and things like that, but, Uh you know, researchers are their own kind of person usually, you know, and that may or may not be related to the, the audience that they're trying to affect in a whole host of, ways, you know? Um, and so I think you have to like get yourself into that headspace, see what they have going on. Um, your audience doesn't eat, sleep, live, and breathe your issue oftentimes. So if you are working on, uh, we did some work for some entities around uh, public education funding uh, on the part of government, for example. We've got a lot of people out there that they, they don't have school age kids or their kids go to private school or whatever. Yeah, and they so don't care so much not about what's going on. They don't right. care. They're not breathing this issue. And so it's really hard to sort of motivate them to act based on that. You have to find some other way to uh, land that message a lot closer to their day-to-day identity. So I think their emotion, empathy, and things like that are not words that are typically found in research where they're sort of wanting to uh, transcend those things. Uh, but yet when you go to have people adopt the behaviors that the research is saying is the right thing to do, those things, I think, sort of come... Roaring back, you know, and the, and those are really important uh, factors in adopting those behaviors.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's huge too. I I do a lot of work with folks talking about understanding like the behavioral change, the whole idea of behavioral change with their patients. Like your patient might not be ready to adopt this healthy lifestyle, and this is how we have to, to basically market or how we message what you're saying in order for it to fall, kind of, we want to not coerce them, but guide them through like this pre-contemplation, like somebody that might not want to wear a mask because they don't see it's a problem all the way through. Okay, how do we like raise awareness? How do we bring them to this? How do we make them decide to take action? And what you're kind of saying is finding a way to make your message align with their identity almost, right? So finding a way for them to do that, or at least for us to say something in a way that kind of pings something inside of them.
2: That's absolutely right. And I, and I really think, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone is a person. And so if you are working with, you know, hospital administrators, the sort of finance side and things Uh like that, which you have experience with, they are people, they're making decisions in, um, you know, the, the, even the sort of research and medical practice people within a hospital have to interact with like a sort of business side and things like that. That's Translation. You know, they're they're still having to to figure out how do we uh, activate the things that they are thinking about.
1: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned something a a while back, a few minutes ago, about you know these people that are doing this research, these people that are trying to bring these ideas to the forefront are are, they're very very smart people, right? They live, eat, breathe this stuff. They know the numbers. They know the the information inside and out. And that sometimes I don't know. Have you read the book uh, by Chip and Dan Heath called Made to Stick?
2: So uh, my wife is my business partner and she has read that book uh, and she tells me about it. And then I do stuff that's in the book because she told me about it. They talk
1: about this, that whole idea, this curse of knowledge is what they call it. Like, you know it so well, you can't, you can almost not even remember what it's like to not know this information. Right. And I'm assuming just from some of the work that you've done, like, would that be one of the bigger blind spots that you're addressing with clients most often than not?
2: It absolutely is. It's the stuff is just so evident to them. They they know it, and they it's very just difficult to access the headspace of an audience that's not already convinced uh, about the value of what it is they know. Um, because lots of people have uh, lot, you know, just concerns in their day to day life. You know, they yeah. got to get the kids off to school, go to work, get some groceries, and stuff like that. So they're just not thinking about this stuff. Um, at the same level, you know, and and especially this sort of causal relationship between whatever social factor, work with people in kind of public health and not, and in other topics too. And same thing, it's, you know, they know, the researchers know that people's lives are affected by this, uh, but they often don't see it from that vantage point. They just see their day-to-day life. And so just simply accessing that headspace is is a blunt spot. It's hard for them. And so Um, that's something we try to help them. We ask a lot of questions and really try to bring it back to in-person interactions that they've had. If there's a takeaway from this uh, for the researchers, I would kind of say, make sure that you are having those in-person interactions with people that are affected by this. You know, there's a lot of uh, like surveys done, for example. Yeah. And that's important and you need that. I would also say, Make sure you're having a conversation with somebody, you know, without without pen and paper, without recording yeah. things, that sort of thing, where you're really just having that conversation and you're seeing what they're, you're getting a sense for what their day is like. You're getting a sense for what is important to them. Because so I think you also pick up a ton of valuable stuff there that helps put some context to the data that you're getting.
1: Yeah, because going back to that whole idea of identity and emotion, you know, like, reading reading a survey is great and it gives you great statistics and you need that sometimes but yeah being able to sit at the other end of a table from somebody and realize their their lived experience with whatever disease or whatever whatever thing you're studying really makes everything kind of come together it takes that knowledge that whole piece of this like this is the research the stuffy academic side and then this is this is who it affects right and how That's absolutely you know, right. Yeah. So. I th- research
2: is really good at, at testing things, yes. but I don't know that research itself is as good at sparking ideas. And I think if you have a conversation with someone, an example uh, here in Mississippi is that there was a really rural part of the state, uh, lots of bad health outcomes in those places, chronic, you know, heart disease and all that. And they were saying, well, people need to walk more. And they, they, talk to the, this was on an NPR piece, and uh, they, they talked to the people and they couldn't go walking because there were these like wild dogs out. Oh, wow. In any uh, You know, who would attack them at the side of the road. And so it's like, okay, well, to, to start dealing with the sort of health, chronic health problem, you have to deal with your dog problem in a sense. That's really, really hard to kind of get there. Uh, I think research is good at testing things. So maybe you have a conversation with someone To me, that's a big light bulb because it's so far outside the frame of reference of where you were focused on. Then now we can go test that and say, okay, access to uh, safe walking trails. Let's do research on that. You can sort of add that into your, you can collect data on it. You can collect something you can test, but I don't think you get there. You even get the spark to investigate that without having some sort of conversation with a real person.
1: Yeah. You're just looking at, oh, people have heart disease. They're overweight. They're not exercising. So, we just need to tell them to exercise. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Like, oh, exercise, huh? Like, people know that Ground that's breaking. important and good. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what besides trying to just get in the, the frame of mind, or maybe even call it like an empathetic frame of mind, like, what else can researchers do to help get their ideas out into the mainstream?
2: Yeah. I think that um, putting the, like figuring out how to tell the story of the research in a way that fits where people are. So a lot of what we do is uh, we will help people create a brand around the thing it is that they are marketing. So um, one of the things we did in Mississippi is they had done a state health assessment, which was a huge survey. It was, I don't know, 20,000 respondents or something like that, a Uh, lot of people uh, around uh, perception of health issues. And from that, they uh, created a state health improvement plan. This was to get their state health department accredited by the public health um, accreditation board. And uh, they came to us at that point, and we helped them create a brand called Uproot Mississippi, which is a sort of public health brand to take the recommendations in the ship, the state health improvement plan, Bureaucracies organizations use a lot of like acronyms and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, they do. Uh, they have a lot of words. And so we created a brand called Uproot Mississippi that is squarely aimed at regular people. Um, and, and that what it does is it is it takes the real recommendations and filters them through something that I think feels more accessible uh, to regular people. And so I think that considering what branding does for that you know, take all this stuff and put it to where people are. So Uproot is a brand that lives on social media. So yeah. it's there to sort of tag. And then that amplifies extremely local work that's happening. So, you know, walking clubs and things like that, that are just sort of local things. It it engages at their level where they're already at, and then tries to amplify the work they do and figure out what's sort of clonable of that so that communities elsewhere Uh, can do that too. So um, if, if researchers have um, knowledge that they can talk about in like popular news, if they can figure out an angle that makes it really relevant, I think that's good. Um, I think that um, the one thing is it's not just end user audiences. Sometimes you have to figure out how to talk about your material in a way that a legislator uh, we'll get we do some work for like forestry commissions and so frankly all legislators care about is job creation and economic impact so when they talk, talk about <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they talk about um, the impact of of their forestry work, they it's framed in uh, really bite-sized infographic bits that someone can understand from an economic development point of view fine. That's what gets them to portion the money they need to do all the other stuff too. So um, knowing, being aware, and I think in recent years, researchers and scientists have become much, much more aware of policy, you know, political power, the legislative process, and the way that that that, uh, intersects. And I would say, um, you know, go assert yourselves at those tables get there, get in front of people. I think where we can help is to help them do that translation aspect. So there's a sort of uh, line of thought that is aimed towards end user audiences, a line mm-hmm. of thought that might be aimed towards policy makers, partners, other stakeholders, stuff like that. Um, but they should be, I, I have just so much respect for these people because again, I, I find the, the material fascinating and I think that I wanna see them be at the table uh when decisions are being made that's even yeah. better than like These the, are the people of, that
1: should be helping make the decisions right <laughs> yeah
2: for sure that's absolutely right yeah and even better than the branding of it is like when it becomes recommended law or becomes a policy that that has some enforcement behind it that's what that's what everybody wants you know
1: yeah well i want to circle back to i got a couple questions um you kind of mentioned well, we'll talk about the whole health literacy and accessibility piece first. So you said taking, taking these recommendations, taking all this stuff and filtering it through in a way that makes it more accessible to the end user. I mean, for me, we always, you know, we talk about that in the way of, you know, they call it health literacy. So like so many people know X number of medical terminology in their, in their daily vocabulary. So how can we make the language, you know, more understandable? And I'm assuming that's part of it but i think you're hinting towards something even even deeper right it's not just making sure the words are easily read right it's not enti- that's
2: absolutely right it's not entirely a sort of formal exercise around the phrasing of something um there's lots of clumsy phrasing out there that either gets adopted or vague things that get that get adopted yeah. it really is about um making it Sort of palatable to where someone's identity already is, and using that to create a better pathway to sort of where you want them to grow to.
1: Yeah, well, and that perfectly dovetails into the next question I had, which was, I'm a, It just sounds like what you're saying. It, this is not something that, let's say, I don't know, the Arthritis Institute comes up with recommendations that you know, like exercise and stretching is good for your joints or whatever. Like, this is not something that they can just you make one kind of global messaging campaign or whatever they can put out to the whole U S or whatever. Right. Like, is this something that needs to be more tailored for, for cities or States or like how granular should they be thinking when it comes to, okay, I've got this idea these, we know that these recommendations don't change for population to population, but the way we message probably does to get adoption. So how granular should they be thinking? That's, Great.
2: So that is absolutely like next level stuff. Um, or, or, you know, just a a deeper way of doing it though. The, I'll come, come at it from two angles in, in some ways, this is still marketing to an audience. Uh Um, if, you know, organizations are bound by their, uh, scope realities, you know, so like, uh, not every organization has a budget to do just a gigantic messaging exactly, yeah. campaign. You don't have to necessarily do it like that. Um, an example from my previous career working um, at a newspaper is I would lay out editorial pages. And um, I would have to put on, like let's say it was a music listings page, and I would have to put a picture of a band on there. for One of the bands that's playing in town this week. And I, to me, this page was a job. It was a thing I have to do get it done, move on to Uh the next thing. I did not have a personal investment in which band I put there. The band I put there is the one that had a high quality photo where I could find it on the internet. That's what (laughs) I would put there. That made my day easier. So for the arthritis association in this example, trying to like create content, material, social graphics, infographics, whatever it is, Put it out there so that other people share it and show it to their audiences, guess who is receiving that? People like me trying to like put this thing up. They've got to schedule, you know, two posts a day for five days a week. Yeah. And so if you are creating content that feels relevant to their audience, putting it out where they can find it, then you don't have to spend money to access their audience. They want to do that because you've created something that's valuable to them. So I think when you get really, um, and this is where the empathy side comes in, who is it that has arthritis? And you start digging into that and say, all right, where do they go? You know, maybe we, um, for, you know, senior week or something, you know, senior appreciation and things like that. We start doing that grandparents day. We put out content that's hashtagged around that, make sure people see it. Um, if you have any kind of, um, you know, arthritis association as an example would have affiliates, sort of local affiliates, uh-huh. or have partner organizations or things like that. You could really sort of um, create content that is that is targeted to them and sort of filter it out that way.
1: Yeah. Well, and you're ta- you're talking a lot about you know creating content, hashtags, social media. Do you ever come across clients or organizations like let's say it's an academic institute that? But- you talk about hashtagging social media and they're like, easy, mister. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do the digital space, right? Right. Or something like that.
2: So from sometimes like a sort of organizational point of view, they have a lot of inertia or they're behind. Uh-huh. But generally the individual that I'm talking to is per, you know, pe- personally competent enough in that. Yeah. So they sort of know what it is. They as an organization may not have figured it out or they're sort of hampered by the same Problems that I I think are kind of global to them where they, you know, it's all important. They don't know how to take all the stuff they have and turn it into a single graphic. So um, for anyone out there that's doing this kind of communication, I always try to get people to each post or each piece of content should focus on a single thing. I don't think you're going to have the sort of skeleton key Content that sort of addresses everything in it—it's too much for people to grab.
1: Yeah, um, you're not frankly, laying out people... a 15-point, you know, health plan. No, or yeah, like absolutely.
2: That. Yeah, people and people don't necessarily like to leave the newsfeed, so they're sort of seeing your stuff in context with other things they're sort uh-huh. of scrolling by. I think the thing to do is to take your stuff, and this is where we come in. We call ourselves Creative Distillery in a sense because we take complicated stuff and distill it down to something uh, more potent, pure you know, uh, you know, more concentrated. And so I think you have to over time get people into your content, your way of thinking, but each specific thing they see is a single coherent contained thought within itself. Uh And we kind of help people with that, but you know, other people could do that too.
1: Yeah. So you're almost like, let's say they, they have this 15 point plan or whatever. Are you breaking each point up into a different post or are you, and are they all kind of coming out sequentially or does it really not matter? Because like if you're scrolling through Facebook or something like that on any given three days in a week, you're not going to see the same content twice, right? So are, a, are they really making that's those That's a great question.
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I would say that the way that we do it, we, you cannot assume that a single audience person is going to see your content in the sequence that you put it out there in. Yeah. Um, That said, if we had a a 15 point plan, so we love getting that from people. You know, I say, you can't really send us too much stuff, give it to (laughs) us, we can handle it. Um, A 15 point plan, you could turn that into 15 weeks worth of content. You could do a week on each point and come at it from different sides. So maybe you have a stat, you know, a series of sort of stat infographics maybe you have some storytelling that shows this point being implemented in the real world the other thing we do is we look at sort of real world calendars so um when um like you have four kids when summer break happens uh, (laughs) for school like your family has to sort of adjust your activities in some way to deal with that you know that's like the thing that's on your mind when spring break happens you have to do stuff when it's holiday time you enter a different mode of thinking. To me, that's part of like um, empathizing with the audience, what's going on in their heads and their lives. And then, so what we would do is look at the points and try to sort of match them up to where people are already at, you know? And sometimes that's really obvious, sometimes it's not. Uh, But when it's obvious that's low hanging fruit, you know, take that, you know? Um, So we try to match that up. So then you're not having to like alter people's behavior so far away from what they're doing already, but you might say, hey, if you're doing this, do this extra thing and, um, and that's helpful.
1: Yeah, kind of ties it into what they're already doing almost. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever come across organizations or I'm, I'm thinking primarily some conversations I've had in academia where it's, you talk about this, this whole idea and they're like, well, that's kind of below us. You know, like we generate the ideas and there should be somebody else that takes care of that. Do you ever run into that idea?
2: That, so that's a great question. Um, It's not typically what we're running into, Uh but it does speak to a larger issue that we have. Like basically once someone has committed to hire us, they are valuing this and they know that it's important. They want to be acting on it. However, huge blind spot that we run into is uh, people treat this side of it as a sort of afterthought or they don't think about it or they think it's someone else's problem. And so, um, you know, my response to that would be, uh, if you care about this thing happening in the real world, that caring about the communications of this idea out, yeah, how it
1: gets out important, be that's got to be, right? that's,
2: be a, that's a part <laughs> of it, right? Because again, just with the mess, we know the knowledge, but it's not being implemented. And so there's there's issues there around um, getting the material out there. So uh, I, I, a part of what we really want to do is is get people thinking about that. Um, we've seen lots of like sort of grant applications, um, and someone, you know, gets funded, but they have like all, you know, pages and pages on the sort of project they're going to do. And then there'll be a little thing at the end and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to make a website about this. And for <laughs> us, that, I mean, that's like a really big deal. Like yeah. we spend a lot of time on that. And so we, if there's anything I would want, it would be for the people sort of performing the research, generating the ideas to know that thinking through the communications part of the implementation is part of what they have to be thinking about. And I think that anybody doing, yeah, absolutely. Like build it in. We, we did some work for a, uh, an evaluator, you know, like a sort of professional uh, consulting service that does evaluation and they kind of run into the same thing. If you're baking in, how is this going to be evaluated into the program design? You guaranteed get better evaluation quality sort of results because you know, you're, you're setting your program up in a way that can be measured. I would kind of say the same thing with communications, bake into the beginning, how you're gonna communicate this, how you're gonna get it to the people, what are the systems that need to implement this knowledge and how are you gonna to get to them?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. Starting, starting from a firm foundation rather than, like you said, tacking it on at the very end. Oh yeah, and we'll, we'll do something to get people to hear about it at the end when it's all done right?
2: that's absolutely right, yeah, and that's just you know, and again i I like this stuff, I want to see it happen in the real world, and you know we we live in a world where people you can't really compel them to do stuff they don't want to do, so you know yeah, it's trying to convince them to want to do it
1: <laughs> um all right, so what about? we've been talking about institutions and big organizations kind of distilling their ideas down. What about like maybe an independent clinician, somebody that's kind of running a physical therapy shop or something like that. And they know their treatment is really helping people with low back pain. Like how do they get their message out in a way that is, you know, going to take what they know, how their skills of treatment or whatever, and then maybe compel somebody to give them a call.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that's, that's branding. That is, you know, a, um, uh, you know, if, if the Heimlich maneuver, you know, had like sort of branded that in a sense uh, he could have done very well. I'm sure. I think he was like 90 when he had to like perform that for the first time. Oh really? (laughs) Like in a sort of real life situation Uh, his whole life, he never had to. Anyway. um, I, I, I think that's where the the value of having something that is that is proprietary, that is branded, where that treatment itself has value because, hey, maybe you, if you're the clinician in that case, you get to license that treatment uh-huh. to other markets, like outside of your sort of territorial market or whatever. Um, and that's great. That's an extra revenue stream uh, for you. So I would say the more you can sort of add value to a uh, a specific approach and certainly the... Uh, in our world of sort of doing consulting, it's a similar, uh, approach to us where you want to sort of add value, add proprietary, Uh um, positioning to, uh, what it is that you offer. I would say branding, marketing, all that, um, those only sort of add value to, uh, that independent clinician who's developed a treatment or something like that.
1: Yeah. All righty. Well, thanks, for being here. We've got a few more minutes left. I want to ask you just any last minute thoughts on knowledge translation. I don't know if you wanted the listener to walk away with like, I don't know, a couple, two, three big points because we have to distill it, right? Nothing big. That's right. 15 point point plan. Just a couple big takeaways. What would they be?
2: Number one is don't treat this part of it like an afterthought. This part is, you know, an essential part of the process of developing knowledge and putting it out into the world. I don't think anyone is gonna work as hard as the people that I know that do this work. I don't think anyone works that hard to not see their insights get out into the world, yeah. put into action, improve people's lives. So the there is a part of that that is a communications part. Don't treat it like an afterthought. That is That would be my single biggest takeaway. Okay. As you sort of open yourself up to that, I think you start to empathize with your audiences You start to think about what's important to them. And that kind of puts you into the posture to uh, think about how to frame your content, the stuff that you're creating
1: um, in a way that's
2: most helpful to them.
1: All righty. Awesome. Well, where can folks uh, find you, find your website and all that? Social?
2: (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. So people can find us at creativedistillery.com. We're on Twitter at branding. Instagram at creative distillery and um, our creative distillery Facebook page uh, is there as well. And we're getting a mailing list going as well. So uh, for people that want to uh, participate in this, we are going to be sending some stuff out there. I am going to be launching soon a uh, survey. So I want to hear from people what their big uh, translation, their sort of knowledge translation, research impact, what their obstacles are, where they're at with it. Um, and and create some uh some collections of that data uh for people so um that's something we're really excited about
1: awesome yeah well darren thanks for being on the show thanks so much rafi this has been
2: really great and i'm excited for uh your listeners to hear this and um you know excited to get a window into the conversations that you're having in uh you know some of these really uh high kind of leadership positions and things like that. That's really interesting for me to hear
1: about. Well, thanks for being here, man. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I love talking with folks who are experts at looking at things a little differently, especially in in healthcare and in academia and in this industry. It's very easy to kind of be insular, right? We've got our research. We've got our ideas. We've got our quote unquote evidence-based practice, but unless we do something to take that evidence, to take that research, to take those ideas and get them to be adopted by the public, it doesn't do us any good, right? So the idea of being able to take your message and craft it in a way that is going to resonate with your clientele, your patients, your audience, the stakeholders, whatever, whatever the case may be, it's definitely a skill that we as Idea generators that we as clinicians, who are often in the business of communicating with our patients, with our clients, with our managers, with our administrators, need to be adept at. And I think, at least for the vast majority of healthcare providers, this whole idea of how do we market an idea, how do we communicate this idea effectively, how do we use the principles of behavioral psychology, of identity, of even the practical, the tools of the day, the social media, the the internet. How do we leverage what we have and communicate it in a way that is going to affect real change? For many healthcare clinicians, many clinicians turned business owner, clinicians turned clinic manager, that idea was never covered for them in their education, in their schooling. We were taught as clinicians to serve people. Right? We're we're taught the technical skills of how to affect change in a patient's life, but oftentimes the marketing idea, if you would, or the marketing communications aspect is really overlooked. So I mean I appreciate Darren coming and spending his time and sharing some of his insight with us about it all. Um and I hope you pulled some practical tips and tricks for even the way he was talking about taking fifteen-point plans and breaking them out into you know that's fifteen weeks of content. If you play your cards right, those of you who are running clinics, who are thinking about man, I'm I'm trying to get this content strategy ironed out. I have no idea how to do it or to market it in a, commu- in, a in an effective way. Something like that is a practical practical thing that you can start doing tomorrow if you wanted to. So, alrighty guys, if you enjoyed the show. You can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and sign up for our subscriber list and we will send you a copy of the next episode straight to your inbox. We drop episodes or release them every other week. You can also learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab, the letter U, solutions.com. Uh, And the tab there for the podcast will give you all the information that you want. If you really like the show and you want to help us out, uh, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It helps with SEO. It helps people find the show and hear the message. Guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and just invest your time in listening to the show. So until the next episode, guys, be healthy, be safe. I will talk to you then.
0: Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new health care. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.RehabYouPracticeSolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.